someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Hello and welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman, recording from my home office in Fukuoka, Japan. And with me today is a very special guest, Emma Jansen, uh, award-winning journalist and author, uh, the author of currently three books with more on the way. And uh, she had a, pardon my French, a hell of a 2023 on the awards front Mm -hmm. with both a James Beard Award and a Spirited Award or Awards. I know that she just took home a lot of hardware and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Emma on the show. Thanks for joining Japan Distilled. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to to catch up. For some reason, I, when I was thinking about it today, I thought this was my second time on the show, but it is actually only my first time. We tried to coordinate one around the time that Way of the Cocktail came up, but I think we, none of our schedules were aligning. So uh, super excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, great to have you on. The, the Way of the Cocktail, of course, is your collaboration with Julia Momose on Japanese cocktail culture. And it's a really, really wonderful read. We had hoped to have both of you on the show. To, to have a discussion about that, of course, Julia being a very busy bar owner, you being a very busy journalist, and Christopher and I running all over the world, yeah, talking shochu and awamori to anybody who will listen. Uh, the stars never aligned, but great to have you on. And of course, now you've written a third book. That was your second. But you and I actually met in Fukuoka when you were in Japan touring around, and you were gracious enough to give me a copy of your first book, which is Mezcal. The History, Craft, and Cocktails of the World's Ultimate Artisanal Spirit. And really lovely, lovely book. You and I have known each other for several years, and you've several times in our conversations have drawn parallels between Mezcal and Honkaku Shochu. And I couldn't think of a, a better person to join the podcast to talk about this since you've written a book about Mezcal and you've also dove into Shochu with your work with Julia. So for our listeners, why don't you give us a Mezcal 101? and let us know what's so special about that artisanal spirit. I think I will, just for the purposes of uh, this discussion, just talk about like agave spirits as a whole category, because even though we call mezcal mezcal today and we call tequila tequila, they are essentially the same spirit, right? They come from the same plant. And uh, for a very long time in Mexican history, they were just kind of considered the same thing, right? They All agave spirits were called vino de mezcal, which is like mezcal wine. There was a pocket of production that started to become known on the international stage. And that is when they created the denomination of origin for tequila. So today there's mezcal, there's tequila, and there are also other regional agave spirits um, from other parts of Mexico. So like Bacanora from Sonora, Raicilla from Jalisco, which is otherwise tequila country. They're what they sound like, right? Um, they're made from the agave plant and they've been made in Mexico for hundreds of years since when the Spanish brought over distillation technologies, which is debatable, but that's the dominant story that people mostly agree upon. The whole category is very interesting, very diverse category. There is actually a quite a parallel as you tell that story. And I was not aware of that history. The earliest mention of awamori from Okinawa, which is a koji spirit, along with honkaku shochu, the Japanese described it as shochu. Mm. That, that's how they called it because it means burned alcohol. It's much like brandy, the, the origins of that term 
the origins of the word soju, the origins of the word shochu, all are the use of fire to create alcohol through distillation. But in Okinawa, it's awamori. But then also, I have seen older shochu bottlings that are clearly not made to awamori standards that have awamori rather than shochu on the label. Okay. So the two terms were interchangeable in the past, and only more recently have they been codified into what they currently mean. That's cool. And also, the there's a fire connection too, right? So agave spirits originally producers would harvest the hearts of these plants. They're called the piña and they're not fermentable in their raw state. They don't have enough fermentable sugar. So they would chop off the leaves and bury them underground with fire and rocks. And that's how they would, they would slow cook them underground. So it was also a kind of a fire spirit, if you will. I'm almost positive all stills were originally fired with actual fire rather than with steam and of course. other methods of heating now. So all of these distilled traditions do come from a similar origin. And it did take a while for distillation technology to arrive in Japan. And I'm wondering now if, if it predated or postdated the arrival of distillation in Mexico. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I think it was the 1600s, maybe late 1500s. Okay. I'd have to go back and look it up because I'm terrible with dates and recalling them. But it was around that time, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, shochu would have been established by the 1500s, and awamori actually was in the late 1400s. So I guess the technology arrived in Japan a little bit sooner than in Mexico. And that's also interesting, too. I was thinking about it earlier, about at least from what I've read, and like, you know, I was going to ask you to correct me if I'm wrong. The distillation technologies came from other places, right? They were brought to these countries. Both countries have such a rich tradition of fermented beverages. In Mexico, they have pulque. You know, you've got sake or nihonshu, I guess is what it's called properly. But then this new technology comes in from a foreign country. And in Mexico, it was the Spanish, but it was also the Filipinos who brought it to the other side of the country. So you have this kind of almost interruption of of this, not necessarily an interruption of tradition, but it's just interesting to me to think about this thing showing up and kind of changing the way people were drinking in these countries. Yeah, shochu, when it, when distillation technology arrived in Japan, it didn't really disrupt maybe to the degree it might have in Mexico because mm. sake was so well-established as a beverage. And mm-hmm. the reason that te- distillation even got a foothold in Japan was it was too hot to make high-quality sake in Kyushu. Okay. So... So distillation allows you to make something uh, that might not taste great before it's distilled, but can can be quite lovely after distillation. And even today, well over 90% of all shochu production in the country is is in Kyushu and Okinawa. Okay. So there's very little production in the northern parts where they still make tremendously beautiful sake. Mm. So it's it's very regional here. Yeah. And, but it, it really became, I guess, a complement to sake, an alternative for the locals. Obviously, we're talking about the f- 14, 15, 1600s. You don't have robust transportation networks. You're not shipping, yeah. you know, shochu up to Hokkaido or to Tokyo. You're, you're just drinking what's being made locally in your village or in, in the neighboring town. So in Mexico, was the distillation sort of overtake the fermented beverages or did it also become a complement? Yeah, I think it was, I think a complement is a nice, is a good way of putting it. Yeah. Cause you know, there's still, I don't think it interrupted fermentation traditions by any means. And were, were there uh, fermented agave beverages at that time? 
Yeah. So pulque is essentially uh, you take the sap out of the heart of the plant and ferment that. And so that's, you know, it's, it's adjacent to the way that they make the spirits out of it. Not exactly the same, but kind of similar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the Japan did something similar where koji fermentation, the heart of Japanese culinary traditions with miso and soy sauce and sake all being made with koji. And then that koji fermentations were then used to, to distill to make the shochu. So mm. uh, that's so cool. Yeah, using using their own fermentation knowledge and adapting it to the, to the new technology seem to happen in both places. And that, yeah, that is mm-hmm. really interesting parallels. Yeah. On exact, op- you know, opposite ends of the world. It's cool. Obviously you did a tremendous amount of research for your Mezcal book. And as you started to look into Shochu and explore it, where did you start to find uh, parallels? I remember being introduced to Shochu by Julia when, you know, we were working on the book together. And then I hadn't really had a chance to try much of it though, until I met you and and came over and you were so gracious to take us around to a couple bars to try it and, you know, and in, in its natural habitat too, which I think you kind of can't, can't help but get caught up in what a beautiful thing it is. And yeah, and having come to that point, I mean, that was late 2019, Mescal, the book came out in 2017. So I had already immersed myself in a, a space where spirits that come from a place where, where it's part of the culture, right? It's part of this place. It's part of this plant. It's part of like the people who make it and finding myself attracted to that and finding myself attracted to spirits that do express a sense of terroir, which I think both of these really clearly do. And so it was just kind of a natural, it was a natural segue to me. And I remember tasting it and thinking like, oh, this is so interesting. And then getting to, to realize how a sweet potato shochu is going to taste so different from one made from buckwheat or rice or whatever it's made out of the, of the many, many, many things that you can make shochu out of. That's what really captured my attention at first, I think, was the way that it expresses the flavors of its raw material. And then from there, also kind of a parallel to that is the way that it's embedded. It's such a traditional thing, which is so beautiful also. That's right. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's striking once you try shochu in Japan and you're enjoying it where in the region where it's made, because you mentioned sake at the beginning and you corrected yourself and said nihonshu. And shochu makers would actually call sake seishu or clarified alcohol Okay, because of the filtration. and then. Nihonshu would just mean Japanese alcohol, if you literally translate the word. Ah, okay. The shochu makers say, well, we're also Nihonshu. Cool. And so when you're in a bar in Tokyo or Osaka or Kyoto and you order sake, they will give you seishu or Nihonshu. Mm, If you order sake in a bar in Kyushu, they're giving you shochu. So sake also just means alcohol. Okay, yes. And uh, and it really is, it's so regional that you will get whatever they're making locally as sake if you are very general in your order. Hmm. I was actually in uh, Kagoshima earlier this week on the southern coast of uh, Kagoshima, about as far away as you can get from sake making country and be in mainland Japan. Hmm. And I went into the oldest restaurant in this city. The proprietoress was in her 80s and she was just waiting for her regular customers to die before she could retire. Oh my God. She was not going to close the shop as long as her regulars still needed her. Wow. And I was the only customer that night. We ended up having a very long conversation. She doesn't even drink shochu or sake. She drinks beer. Okay. 
so she cracked open a bottle of beer and had a drink with me as we were talking. And, and she was saying that nobody drinks sake. Anytime that she had ordered sake for her, for her restaurant to serve to customers, she'd end up cooking with it mm. because nobody would drink it. Everybody was drinking shochu. Oh, that's funny. Coming back to the regionality of it, the interesting thing for me is that, and, and we, we did an episode about terroir and spirits and what that really means. And in some shochu traditions, it is very, very terroir driven. Mm -hmm. For example, sweet potato shochu made in Kagoshima prefecture from locally grown potatoes using their local spring water. That is satsuma shochu. And it very much expresses the quality of the soil. Mm. When the distilleries are using potatoes from near the Sakurajima, the, the very active volcano, you get an ashiness in the distillate. Oh, cool. When it's from another part of the prefecture that's further from the volcano, maybe it's near the ocean, you might get some brininess mm. simply from the, the environment in which the potatoes were grown. Uh, and that's just fascinating to explore. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have barley shochu, which there isn't any strong tradition of using local Japanese domestic barley. Most of the barley used is from North America or from Australia. Oh, so interesting. They've really almost completely uh, divorced from the concept. All that's starting to change. There's an initiative in Oita Prefecture to use an heirloom barley variety called Toyo no Kaze to make local barley shochu in Oita. So there is a recognition that this, is, that this matters. Love that. Yeah, a question. And when I think about regionality in agave spirits, I think the environment definitely matters. The soil, the altitude, the climate, all of those things matter. But then layer on top of that, there are regional differences in production techniques too and tools. In some parts of the country, they distill in clay pots. And others, they ferment in plastic. There are a lot of variations and, and some of them can be within, even within the same region, but town to town. Do you see any of that in Shochu or is it pretty much made the same way by everybody? There, there certainly are variations. The reason I was down in Shibushi in Kagoshima was to visit a wooden stillmaker. There's a, an artisan, a craftsman who makes uh, stills out of cedar and... Uh, he swears that he can tell the difference between a shochu made in a, a stainless steel still, which is the industry standard, or made in a cedar still. It, it's mellower, it's rounder, it's got a, some of them express a little bit of cedar, even though it's only in that still in the boil for about three or four hours, mm -hmm. it still expresses that because cedar is such a strongly flavored wood. I believe it. Yeah. He's the only craftsman making these traditional stills. And he doesn't have an apprentice. Oh, wow. So when he retires, that will be the end of that very traditional method. There is uh, another outfit that is a still builder, but they take shortcuts and they use like metal bands to hold the still together. Mm -hmm. He uses bamboo fronds. He doesn't use any metal in the construction of his stills. Wow. Uh, so he, what he does is very, very special and unique. So That's super cool. Yeah. I bet that flavor is really interesting. It is. It is. The other regional variation that you get, and I'm, I'm going to maybe compare awamori to, to shochu for a moment. Down in Okinawa, awamori is made with 100% koji inoculated rice. Mm -hmm. So all of the grain has to be inoculated with koji before it goes into the fermentation. Where in shochu, they do it more in a sake style where they create a starter fermentation, which is where the koji and yeast work together to create a really robust 
yeast culture, and then you add your main ingredient. So you'd start with a rice koji ferment, and then you'd add sweet potatoes, and that makes it a sweet potato shochu. Okay. Or in Oito, which I mentioned before, they're doing 100% barley shochu. So they grow a starter fermentation on steamed barley with koji, and then they're adding more steamed barley. Mm. But doing 100% koji inoculated is very uncommon in Kyushu, but it is all they do in Okinawa. Okay. So that's another variation. And then Okinawa, they're using black koji, which is their local koji, mm-hmm. uh, very strong ancient mold that that does a very good job of protecting the fermentations in that very hot human environment of Okinawa. And certainly Okinawa and Aomori is very strong regionality, but it would be hard to call it terroir because virtually all of the rice is imported from Thailand. Ah. They're using long long grain Thai rice because of the long trading history between Okinawa and Thailand. Cool. And there's not a lot of arable land in Okinawa. It's an island prefecture. Mm-hmm. And what land there is, is, is used for sugarcane. Okay. So sugarcane was much more profitable and it wasn't taxed the way that rice was taxed in, in feudal Japan. So they concentrate on sugarcane production to maximize their income. Hmm. But they're not making sugarcane distillate. They're not. Right? They're not making rum. Okinawan sugarcane is used, obviously, for sugar uh, production. Mm-hmm. And there, there are now some rum distilleries in Okinawa, but those are, are relatively recent. But a lot of that cane would go to the Amami Islands, where they do make kokuto sugar shochu. Okay. Which still needs a koji starter fermentation, a rice koji starter fermentation. And then you're adding the kokuto sugar, which is a roughly refined block of of sugar and i'm sure you're asking yourself why do you need koji if you have a sugar source because koji does sacrification right right yeah it's breaking the starches into sh- uh, simple sugars i didn't understand it and when i first tried kokuto sugar shochu i was like ah it's just like a light rum mm-hmm. i sort of dismissed it and then i visited amami it was a tour where it was me and some sommeliers and some bar owners and i was the only uh, english speaker on the tour it was all japanese and me and we spent two days in a hotel conference room and we were tasting shochu, kokuto shochu with the makers and giving them notes on their products. Oh, wow. And it's the first time that they had ever had a vocabulary put to what their drinks tasted like. Interesting. That was a fascinating experience. And I was the only one giving this feedback in English. Uh-huh. I tried 35 to 40 different kokuto shochu from the 28 producers on the islands. They were all different. Cool. I was shocked. Yeah. Because I dismissed this category. I was like, I'll go because this trip is being sponsored by the government. But I wasn't that excited about it other than getting to visit the Amami Islands. Sure. I came away a huge fan of Kokuto Sugar Shochu. So. That's really neat. So I actually, I pulled out one of the bottles that y'all sent me a while ago. The <laughs> It's the Cellophant. Okay. So, and that's what I'm drinking right now. Yeah. From the Amami Islands. Kokuto Sugar Shochu, made by Serena Nanishihira. It's a yeah. really, really nice product. I almost forgot. The, the, even after that experience, I wasn't still wasn't sure why do you need the koji. That was never explained to me, and I hadn't figured it out. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. I was uh, talking with a biochemist, and he said, well, the koji creates a nutrient-rich environment for the yeast. So you get a cleaner fermentation. You get a cleaner spirit after distillation. Okay. You think about how funky some rums are. Uh-huh. Exactly where my mind went. Yeah. The yeast like almost overheats. It's got so much sugar to eat mm-hmm. when it's when it's making a rum that it starts to throw off aromas and flavors, which we love in rum. We love funky rums, at least I do, and I'm sure you do. Oh yeah. But uh that's the reason that the koji matters is you end up with these very soft, 
uh, elegant spirits uh, from the Amami Islands. Yeah, that is that is super cool. I guess regionality is a better word for what's happening. Even in the Amami Islands, most of the shochu is not made with locally grown cane. There's just too little of it and it's too expensive. Okay. And so they end up using either Okinawan cane or even imported from the Philippines, which is obviously another big sugar producing region in Asia. Yeah. But the regionality is in Okinawa, it's the only place Awamori is really made to any great degree. And in the Amami Islands is the only place they're allowed to make kokuto sugar shochu. The regionality certainly exists, even if the, the ingredients are not local. Yeah. All the time. Sometimes they are. Yeah. And, but even then, like, it sounds like in those instances where they might not be local ingredients, there's still a story there, right? It's still telling the story of a relationship with another country or, you know, a legacy of trade. And that, and that is also interesting in and of itself, I think. That's right. And it was actually in the Amami Islands where I first saw a bottle of shochu labeled as Awamori. It said Mm -hmm. Amami Awamori, and it was made with Kokuto sugar. (laughs) And this bottling was probably from around the 1950s. Wow. It was just in the display case of one of the distilleries. Cool. Uh, terms are flexible sometimes. Yeah. I think you and I might have been able to try this together at Tales of the Cocktail this past year. But one of the Kagoshima shochu makers is obsessed with mezcal. Oh. So he actually made a batch of sweet potato shochu in which he roasted the potatoes underground in a pit with fire, like you would do with the piña. Yes in agave spirits and he made his sweet potato shochu with those potatoes he still used the koji starter fermentation as required uh but it tasted like sweet potato shochu and mezcal had a baby it is so cool <laughs> i mean it was an absolutely fascinating fascinating drink yeah oh i love yeah i love that uh there's nothing like a like a good roasted fire roasted sweet potato right you get caramelization and and that translates into the spirit in a really beautiful i imagine there was a little bit of smoke quality going on that's really cool that's right yeah i visited that distillery with our friend matthew powell who's the owner of the doctor's office in seattle and he was so excited that when i was back in the states he gave me a bunch of samples of mezcal to take back to the distiller so that he could try different expressions oh wonderful from matthew's private collection yeah, that'll be fun. I, That's really cool. Did you, you haven't done that yet? You're doing it? Yeah. In end of this month, I believe a good friend of ours who is from Mexico, but now lives in Kagoshima is friends with this distiller and we're, we're, we've decided to do a, a, a barbecue. We're going to cook out and roast some chicken and, and, uh, nice. and some, some pork and make, make tacos for the <laughs> distillers and his family and and some guests and uh we'll share that mezcal and and i'm sure a lot of shochu at that at that little party should be a lot of fun love that that's wonderful now to shift gears a little bit i'm curious about how maturation or aging is used in mezcal in shochu there's actually a disincentive to long aging because the distillers are taxed at the time of production on the volume that they produce so any angel share they paid tax for, but they haven't, they cannot sell. Mm. So it really drives up the price of long age shochu because they're needing to recover all that tax money plus the cost of the base ingredients and everything. And I was curious about in Mezcal what, what the aging traditions are like. Yeah, for the most part, aging is not traditional in Mezcal and agave spirits. I think for the most part, that really started with tequila. It's been a while since I've kind of looked into this as a topic, but I know that like Mexican drinkers have long had a fondness for whiskey. A lot of 
American bourbon, quote unquote, was being made on the Mexican side of the border during prohibition. I think that probably influenced like what would happen if we put tequila in a barrel. Don't quote me on any of that. This is all off the top of my head, not having read about <laughs> it for a while. But in, in mezcal, it's, it's really not as common. What is more common, which I have always found to be very interesting, is how a lot of uh, mezcal producers will age in glass. So they'll, they'll put it in a bottle and they'll let it sit for a certain amount of time. And everyone has a different amount of time that they think is, is necessary and uh, were beneficial for the spirit. And, and the idea is just to kind of let it mellow and let the flavors come together. I tasted one last time I was in Oaxaca uh, that had been aged and they left the big glass jug out in the sun because they were wondering if that would change it. You know, most aging rooms I've seen have been indoors, so not in direct sunlight. It really had such a wild, interesting flavor. I think there is a difference. You can tell when the flavors start to marry and, and evolve a little bit, even just in glass. I believe a very, very long time ago, they even used to Asian glass underground, like they'd bury the jug and then come back and get it later for a special occasion for a wedding or a birth or, you know, a holiday or a celebration. Interesting. Was there any tradition of ceramic aging, do you know, since they were using ceramic stills? Not that I know of. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but yeah, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I think somewhat parallel to your story about how barrel aging became more popular with the whiskey production in Mexico. Whiskey became very popular in Japan and so shochu makers started to barrel age their shochu. Hmm. And because of the tax regime, they could sell it for less than imported whiskey costs. And that led to a lawsuit by the UK against Japan for unfair tax practices for imported goods oh. through the WTO. And the compromise is that now shochu makers cannot legally sell barrel aged distillate that's too dark. If it gets to the darkness of a whiskey, then you can't sell it as shochu. So they, they're essentially handcuffing their yeah. domestic producers in the favor of, of the Scotch whiskey makers. Right. And then also like confusing. I mean, that's very confusing for drinkers, right? Or maybe not in Japan, but I think for, for American drinkers who are already just trying to like get wrap our heads around what shochu is. And then there's this other kind of category that is very mysterious and, and confusing, especially when taxes are thrown into the conversation. That's right. Uh, my, my brain just goes, <laughs> like, what is happening? Alcohol tax has been important to many governments around the world, I'm sure. But in Japan, I believe beer tax at one point was about a third of all government tax revenue. Oh, wow. And that's just beer. Yeah. Not even the other alcohols that are consumed here. So fortunately, Japan is beginning to harmonize or rationalize their tax structure for alcohol. Mm. Uh, but I don't know if that color restriction is going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. That's such a shame. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm. The shochu, it is it is similar to what you mentioned, going back to the uh, inert vessel aging, whether it's glass or in Japan, enamel line tanks are often used for shochu. Mm. The spirit is just given enough time to mellow and to blend, to harmonize, I guess. Mm -hmm. I've tried shochu right off the still and then after it's been aged and they are so completely different. There's a really beautiful roasted barley shochu called Aokage from the Yanagita distillery in Miyazaki. And I call it a roasted barley shochu, but that's only because it expresses like coffee and cacao. Mm. But 
he uses a, a steamed barley fermentation. He doesn't use a roasted barley fermentation, which is how other roasted barley fermentations are made. Because he's an engineer, and so he has modified his still. He has direct steam injection inside the still, but he's put the nozzles, the steam nozzles, on swivels. So he turns the nozzles toward the side of the still, and he caramelizes the fermentation during distillation to get those roasted notes. Whoa. That's wild. I love the precision of that too. You know, like he thought really hard about how to get that flavor out of, out of this process. He did. He did. I tried that when he had freshly made it. It was essentially right off of the still and it tasted nothing roasted. It just tasted like gas and funk and weird. Mm-hmm. Um, not something you'd want to drink really. Once it rests in a tank for a year or two, it is this gorgeous, gorgeous roasted barley expression. So it's a, oh. uh, fascinating drink. Really, really love that one. I know that that is available in some states in the US. It's a blue label. We'll put a picture of it in the show notes. That's an example of of where that mellowing of the spirit really does make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. In agave spirits, is there any, are there any styles in which there is a tradition of of basically consuming very soon after distillation or is it usually mellowed before bottling? That's a good question. I think it's a mixture of both um, because not everyone glass ages. Mm -hmm. So I think it might also be a regional thing. Yeah. Some of it would be bottled young. Mm -hmm. And that's what, uh, what is now called Shinshu or new spirit, new make essentially shochu that's released every year. And it's usually bottled within two weeks of production. Okay. And it is just, full of all of these off gases and things because mm. you're talking about a single pot distillation, right? You're going through a, right. a atmospheric pot still one time and there's a lot of funk that comes through when you do that. And that's part of why it's rested usually for three to six months at minimum. Mm. You bottle it two weeks after distillation and you're going to get a lot of that funk in the bottle and shochu fans love it. Yeah. And I don't care for it. <laughs> yeah. That was going to be my question was like people and people like this. <laughs> yeah. There's, there are two distilleries that I that I do like their shinshu because both of those uh, makers do not like shinshu. Mm. So they make their shinshu as clean as possible. Christopher enjoys it. I'm, I'm just, I'm not much of a fan. Um, yeah. But I, I have, ha- occasionally I have bottles, bottles given to me and I, I'm not going to refuse them. Of course. But I'm also not going to drink, drink them right away. But if I open them a couple of years later, they've essentially bottle conditioned and then they're fine. Okay. There you go. That's the secret. Okay, I like That's it. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's super cool. So in Mezcal specifically right now, there are also classifications for the different styles, right? So like Ancestral um, has to be distilled in clay pot stills and the fibers are crushed with a tahona and it has to be fermented in like wood or clay or sometimes like rawhide or tree trunks. And then there's artisanal, which is like a little bit more modern where, you know, you can use a mechanical shredder or you could use a, a copper still. And so those, those are kind of like the styles of mezcal that all the, the aficionados are really into, right? Cause you're getting all this, all this flavor, all this tradition. And then there's kind of like industrial mezcal. <laughs> there's a division between honkaku shochu and there is also industrial shochu, right? As well. That's a great question. It's something that I think at some point the industry needs to wrap their head around a little bit better than they've done so far. The shochu again just means burned alcohol. So in the early 20th century, there was the introduction of the column still, 
And so there is a style of shochu called korui shochu, which is basically vodka that's proofed down to 35%, which is a standard bottling for korui shochu. And it's just a flavorless light ABV vodka. Mm. And there's nothing interested about it, but it's what's used to make chuhais. Okay. It's a neutral spirit. And so it, fruit juice and soda, and you've got yourself a the indigenous Japanese cocktail mm-hmm. with a korui shochu. But nobody would drink that for its flavor or to enjoy the expression of the ingredients that it's made from, right? Okay. This is usually partially distilled cane spirit imported from South America, refined in Japan, and then proofed down and bottled. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing special about it. It's, it's as industrial as you can probably get in Japanese spirits. Yeah. And then honkaku shochu means uh, pot distilled shochu has to be made with koji. The word honkaku means authentic. It's also sometimes called otsuri shochu, which is old style shochu. Because the introduction of korui shochu in the early 20th century was the cleanest distillate Japanese people had ever, ever had. And they were excited about it. So that became the premium one. Mm. And then the traditional style was the old funky smelly one that fell out of favor for a little while. Now it's come back and that's been uh, rebranded as Honkaku Shochu. Okay. Otsuri Shochu still exists, and that's where you don't follow one of the rules, basically. So Honkaku Shochu is koji fermentation, approved ingredients, uh, single batch pot distillation, and no additives. Okay. So the no additives rule applies to Otsuri Shochu as well, and the koji applies. But if you use a non-improved ingredient, Honkaku Shochu would become Otsuri Shochu. Okay. So that category still exists, but it's it's pretty uncommon. And then there's another style called konwa shochu, which is when you blend korui shochu with otsuri or honkaku shochu, and you'll still get the flavor of the base ingredient from one part of it, and you'll bring the price down from the other. Okay. So it's kind of a middle ground. Hmm. They're very, very affordable relative to honkaku shochu. Then... <laughs> oh no, within, there's more. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay. Within, within honkaku shochu, you have... Uh, the tezukuri designation. Tezukuri means handmade. Okay. And you can have the tezukuri designation if you make your koji by hand. Oh. So if you don't use an industrial koji machine, which is an automated, you add the spores to the steamed grains and it does everything internally and it spins a drum or it, it rotates the, the big, uh, on a, it has a big, it's hard to describe, like a big grater almost just is constantly mis- mixing the rice and the koji or the barley and the koji. Mm-hmm. And that can be done at very large scale where handmade koji production is is very time intensive and labor intensive and yeah. can only be made in really small batches. And so that's what I guess you could consider the pr- most premium level of shochu mm-hmm. production as far as any sort of official classification. But within handmade shochu, there's other considerations. For example, are you uh, fermenting in ceramic pots? Are you distilling in a wooden pot still versus a, a, a stainless pot still. Mm. Are you using any machinery to assist you in temperature control okay. uh, of your fermentations? Those are all additional considerations that are not part of the official designation of handmade shochu, but I think should be. Because mm. if you're letting something else help your temperature management or you're using modern equipment, then that's a little bit less handmade than... yeah when you're doing everything the very, very, very traditional way. But those designations don't really exist yet. You just have to know enough about the distilleries and the brands that they're making to know which ones are really the the most traditional you can find versus mm-hmm. a little bit less traditional. Oh, that's so interesting. 
in shochu, though, until relatively recently, the really, really traditional styles had fallen out of favor. And I think part of it is there is variation in the quality year to year Mm -hmm. or even batch to batch. When you're doing everything by hand, there are going to be mistakes made and things might not be as great. And there's a, a an expression, especially for Japanese, probably from middle age on up, that is imo kusai, which means smelly sweet potato. And that refers to traditional sweet potato shochu, which was just so smelly that like people have childhood memories of their grandfather who drank or their uncle who drank sweet potato shochu and was just always smelled of shochu. He just reeked of shochu. Yeah. And that's not a fond memory for a lot of people. But And so that tr- traditional doesn't always mean better, right? I guess is the, the point of, of that. Right. Um, that style still exists, but it's really fallen out of favor. Mm-hmm. Most uh, sweet potato shochu today is very, very mild compared to what, what was being made even 10 or 15 years ago. There's been a big shift in the hmm. in how it expresses. Interesting. Really working to get more fruity, mild flavors rather than big, rich, funky flavors. Okay. Huh. It is interesting how you know, those things do come in and out of favor, right? And I think, especially in mezcal, watching it grow over the last 10 years, that's just as long as I've been paying attention. Early wave aficionados, you know, have been so concerned about this idea of preservation of tradition. As mezcal goes around the world, it goes to other countries, people fall in love with it. There's a very real concern that the flavor is going to become homogenized, right? And I think we are seeing that now in a way that we weren't necessarily seeing 10 years ago. So much mezcal right now is is, is smoky, right? Because everyone thinks, oh, it's the smoky spirit. When there's this huge range of, of diverse flavors based on what agave variety you're using and how it's made. And the ones that I love the most are, are really bright green flavor, like jalapeno and, and bell pepper. And, and so it, it sounds like, I mean, would you say like, just listening to you speak, it sounds almost like within the categories that exist, there are still tradition is kind of living alongside this, modern, industrial at times. These styles are, they live in the same space and people have an understanding of what is one versus the other. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think right now, most drinkers are still so new to mezcal that they just think it's all its all the same, right? It's all made by you know a, a producer with generations of experience up in a remote village in the mountain when a lot of it's right now being made in these huge factories. Mm-hmm. Is there an understanding of of the different, like, those different things amongst drinkers? I think within within Japanese domestic drinkers, people tend to be quite brand loyal. And most people don't really care that what scale it's being produced at as long as they think it's delicious, which I think it's that's a rational mindset. Yes. Mm-hmm. Within, I guess, the the aficionados of the styles, they're they're very strongly in favor of supporting the small traditional makers. Mm-hmm. Now, in Shochu and Awamori, there's about 450 active distilleries across Kyushu and, and Okinawa. And I would say 80% of those are what we would call small producers. Okay. So these are people making very limited scale, maybe only selling locally. And then the other 20%, probably most of those would be medium-sized producers who sell nationally, but aren't everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then you've got about five to 10 producers total who are everywhere. And they're all working on 
economies of scale that the small producers cannot fathom. Yeah. My favorite example is Kirishima Distillery, which makes the best-selling brand in the world called Kuro Kirishima. And that brand is available in every convenience store, every supermarket, every izakaya, Mm -hmm. everywhere. It is everywhere. They produce five times more shochu in a single day than Yamato Zakura, where I work every year, makes in a year. Oh, wow. In one of their distilleries, they have five distilleries. Oh, no. They run six days a week, 50 weeks a year. Wow. Yeah, they that's... make a massive amount of shochu relative to Yamato Zakura. Yeah, that's insane. They're the biggest distillery by, by far. I think they're about twice the size of, this, of the number two at this point. So they're very, very big. And they're the most popular brand because it's nice, easy drinking sweet potato shochu. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're, they're, they're number one for a reason. But of course, aficionados would never consider drinking Kurokirishima unless it's the only thing available uh, at the moment. There, there's always going to be... And they were really thirsty. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's going to be reasons why people will gravitate toward uh, one distillery or one region or another based on their own preferences. And there is certainly regional loyalty. Mm. People from Kagoshima very rarely will drink shochu from Miyazaki. And and even in Miyazaki, because Kirishima is made in Miyazaki Prefecture, mm-hmm. but Kirishima is the name of a mountain range in Kagoshima. So they've taken a Kagoshima name and applied it to a Miyazaki shochu brand. So people in Miyazaki don't want to drink Kirishima because it feels like it's from Kagoshima. Yeah. So they've decided other brands are more authentically Miyazaki shochu. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that that came to mind was when Julia taught me that spirits like shochu were traditionally consumed very simply, right? Neat or with water or hot or... um, And uh, mezcal is very similar, right? Mm -hmm. Only ever really consumed on its own up until uh, in Mexico, especially bartenders were not using it to make cocktails up until very recently. Now we're starting to see like shochu cocktails too, right? And like bars in Japan also kind of looking towards these very traditional ingredients and making them into cocktails. Shochu virtually for all of its history and awamori as well has been consumed either straight with cold or hot water dilution. And that was that was it. Only about eight to 10 years ago did shochu with soda actually become a thing. Okay. Uh, but now, and I think largely because of what's happened with shochu overseas in cocktails, it's boomeranged back to Japan. Mm-hmm. And now you have Shingo Gokan, who's released his own line of the SG shochu. Yeah. Where you have an internationally acclaimed bartender who's embraced shochu as one of his tools. Uh, and that that is something that I think has caught the attention of a lot of other bartenders in Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, you go into a traditional tuxedoed cocktail bar in Japan and you are not going to find shochu. Right. Unless the bartender happens to have a regular who's a fan. Mm-hmm. And then that that bottle's well hidden behind the bar for when that regular comes in. Uh, but the, the more modern, I guess, what we're thinking about the renaissance of cocktail bars, the the leather aprons and the, yeah. the the vests and all of that, you are definitely finding shochu and awamori in more and more cocktail bars in Japan, which is nice to see. Yeah, it's exciting to see these spirits embraced by bartenders, you know, who are now can make a cocktail that speaks to the region, the terroir, the ingredients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely seeing the same thing in mezcal. There's a uh, upcoming 
Japanese Sake and Shochu Makers Association cocktail competition for the U.S., which they've been running this now for several years in a row. And I had a bartender reach out to me and said, I was thinking about using this shochu. What are the regional agricultural products from that area? Because I want to build a cocktail that really expresses that region. Yeah. And I was like, that's so thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I really love the fact that he took the time to think about it that way. Yeah. And so I sent him some suggestions, one, one of which was katsuobushi the dried bonito fish flakes. Oh, fun. Which I'm not sure if he'll yeah. use that in his cocktail or not, but it could be a lot of fun to bring in some umami. <laughs> totally. Oh, I love that. But yeah, you know, I haven't I haven't had too many shochu cocktails yet because I think it still is catching on over here in the US. One that I, that I adore, that I just love so much. It's the reason why I thought maybe we should talk about this today is because uh, it's called the Koji-san and it's from Bargoto in New York. <laughs> Kenta Goto created it and he didn't mean for it to be a margarita, but it's essentially, it, it tastes and reads like a margarita, but it's, it's a uh, shochu and mezcal in the glass together, Okay, which was another reason why I, you know, I, I've been thinking so much about their you know, similarities and differences. I saw you tweet a while ago about making a Negroni with the sweet potato shochu. <laughs> I finally made one up last night. It's been on my to-do list for forever and I kept forgetting. <laughs> and then, um, so I finally did it and I thought it was so good. And then I split the base with mezcal oh, wow. and sweet potato shochu. And it's just such a, it just exploded with complexity. Oh, I bet it did. These spirits, they, they also complement one another in the glass, which I think is, is Maybe not unexpected, I think, if you know what these spirits are. And I'm sure that a lot of them are not going to go together, right? Mm -hmm. I think sweet potato and, and mezcal makes a lot of sense because they both have those darker, the caramelized flavors. You know, that beautiful, clean, not super sweet, but just lovely and bright flavor profile, I would maybe put with a tequila mm -hmm. because it doesn't have that kind of smoky element because tequila... Uh, agave plants are not roasted underground. They're usually steamed in ovens. And so I think the number of options that bartenders have to work with in, in using these spirits together, it could be a huge rabbit hole and a very delicious and, and exciting one, I think. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'll have, I'll have to try that. I only have one mezcal at home, unfortunately. Mm. I'll, I'll give it a shot maybe this evening. Yeah. You mentioned a split base shochu cocktail that I had recently is at Singlish in New York. There's a bartender named Jane Nam. She's actually a, a chef by training, but she bartends a couple nights a week because she just loves bartending. Uh, she loves hospitality and being behind the bar is a lot of fun. It's another way for her to create. She split bases Takamine Koji whiskey with colorful sweet potato shochu. Oh, nice. I would never have thought of that. It's amazing. Sounds really good. It's a really, really incredible cocktail. And then she... Uh, just sent me a, a recipe that she made. I've never made a sour at home, like a proper egg white sour Oh, uh -huh. at home. I was a little terrified of doing it, but she's like, you've got to try this recipe. It was a split base Aperol and Mugi Hoka roasted barley shochu. Okay. 50-50. Oh. Egg white, chocolate bitters. Yum. Lemon juice. Dry shake, then add the ice. Yeah. Finish the shake. I would be into that. Oh my. I've... I have never, never made a home cocktail that tasted that good. That's super cool. And it was only my first try. So I was, I was shocked. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I now understand why egg whites mattering in sours because the texture was just beautiful. Yeah. They can be absolutely gorgeous. If, as long as you're using fresh 
eggs. And if, if you're not, then it's a disaster. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> texture wise. It's such a lovely thing when you, when it's done right. Yeah. I went out and got fresh eggs for that one. I wasn't going to take my chance. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just not worth it. You know, if, if, no, you, if there's a all. question about it, just don't use them. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Those, those get saved for egg salad. I think. Yeah. But I'm excited to see, you know, as more like U.S. bartenders kind of get hip to shochu, I'm, I'm really excited to see what kinds of drinks they start making with it, you know, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. because, you know, it is a lower proof. Mezcal works really well in cocktails because a lot of it is uh, 40 ABV or above. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's got this real strong backbone. It's got a real commanding presence in the glass. But as people are are looking for like low proof cocktails, I think shochu is mm-hmm. such a beautiful option for that and and the flavor you know the the flavor pairing options also there are just so many that come to mind <laughs> i hope to see more of that i do i think we will i mean death and companies embrace shochu mm. obviously angel share is using more shochu now yeah you just have a lot of really really nice bars that are are starting to play with it the, the jose andres restaurant group is starting to that's right shochu in some cocktails so there's just really really interesting things happening I think it's on the cusp. I think the, yeah. the time is coming when shochu cocktails are going to be expected on, mm-hmm. on many cocktail menus, which is is exciting. Yeah. Talking about shochu for lower proof cocktails, I think that was what was fascinating in making that that sour is Mugi Hoka is only 25% alcohol. Oh, wow. Uh, so it became a quite low proof sour because mm-hmm. you didn't have any 40 or 45% spirit in the, in the drink. It was just... yeah. The Al- Aperol and the, and the Mugihoka. So it was nice and easy drinking. It was lovely, as I said. And as I began my exploration of shochu cocktails on my own, because I wanted to understand it, I was never really that into cocktails. As a fan of the spirit, I wanted to taste the spirit mm-hmm. on its own. Yeah. But I've, I've learned to appreciate cocktails. And in my own exploration, I always thought, well, with a lower proof shochu, you're going to have to bump up the shochu in order for it to, sh- to shine through, to, to express in the drink. Mm-hmm. But I've realized that's not always true. Yeah. In a Mugi Hoka Negroni, that same roasted barley shochu, you can do a standard Negroni ratio of one, 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 and it turns it into a chocolate Negroni. Ah. It's a, yeah. It's a really, really delicious drink. And you've dropped that main spirit down to 25% rather than 40 or 45 or 50. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's been fun to, to explore for sure. Yeah. I lo- I've really been enjoying watching your cocktail adventures on on social media. It's yeah, fun. I appreciate that. Yeah, I I, I remember that used to have, have a pretty dim view of them, but I've uh, I've come around. The one thing I can't <laughs> find are proper cocktail coupes. Like I just don't have the glassware. Oh. And uh, I oh no, I, that's surprising. Yeah, if to me. Well, I want to find them either J- Japanese made glass, or I want to find some vintage glassware. Yeah. And it, it's just it's been tough to find here in Japan. Mm. Uh, but I keep looking. And at some point, my glassware will change from the one that I normally use, which is not a cocktail glass at all, yeah. to something that's <laughs> more more appropriate for the drinks. <laughs> it does make the experience, you know, you do feel fancy. Yeah. And, and with a cocktail, you should feel fancy, you know? So of course, of yeah, course, I support I support your quest to find a, a really nice vintage glass. I bet all the cocktail bars have have pretty much snatched them all up. But right. you never know. Yeah, I've, I found some uh, absolutely beautiful glasses at a shop here in Fukuoka. And then I looked at the price tag and they were about $150 a piece. Ooh. And I decided that I was not, and they were super thin, gorgeous glass. Oh, I bet. I was like, yeah. 
I will break one of these the first time I try to hand wash it. I am not going to bring this yeah. in. That's yeah, just a waste that's, of money. It's <laughs> a little risky. That's too yeah. fancy, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, they, they were absolutely stunning glasses. So if, if I trusted my washing abilities a little bit more, I might have might have tried it. But yeah, yeah. not worth the risk. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> this has been really fun conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. I know you're not finished writing. So can you uh, mm. let us know what's coming? I guess we, we talked about your first two books, your third one was the bartender's manifesto with toby maloney from the violet hour fame that one's a really fun one and it's a good segue from what we we're just talking about because it's essentially like how how to think like a bartender and how to drink like a bartender so it's it's about mechanics of mixing cocktails but also like philosophies and mindset and the tenets of hospitality and things like that so we had such a good time working on that book that we uh just signed a contract for a sequel or rather a prequel. We're calling it a prequel because it, it is uh, not going to be as intense as Manifesto was. Manifesto is is definitely like, it's pretty hardcore cocktail school, if you will. You can't put Manifesto in the title and, and not be hardcore, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so the second one we're working on, the working title is um, The Classic Cocktail Sessions. And so it's a lot more relaxed and we are just focusing on classics. Uh, so Negroni, Martini, Manhattan, and and looking at these old, familiar, timeless, storied cocktails through the lens of a modern bartender. So like just because the Negroni was invented as equal parts doesn't necessarily mean that's how you have to make it today, right? So we're giving people tips on how to dial in these cocktails and turn the volume up on them a little bit in a way that feels personal, mm -hmm. which is just a joy. It's, it's, it's so much fun. When you say sessions, is it going to be a musical thread to it as well? Not necessarily. We were kind of just taking inspiration from, from that idea, right. From like a musical session and saying what would happen if, you know, each one of these drinks in the book is just like a session where we're hanging out with you, the reader, like in your home kitchen or at your home bar and like just kind of jamming, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how can we do this um, as much as you can do in a book anyway? That sounds a lot, a lot of fun. I look forward to that. Thank you. But you have another one is right. It's actually coming out sooner. Yes. The one that's coming out sooner, which is also very exciting. I co-authored with uh, Jim Meehan of, uh, Meehan's manual and PDT fame. That one's called The Bartender's Pantry. And also super cool uh, concept. It's about these different families that make up the quote unquote pantry. And essentially it's, it's a handbook to each category and looking at this ingredient through the lens of how do you source the best version of this? What are the things you need to take into consideration? How how do you best store your coffee or your tea so that when you decide to finally go make a cocktail with it, you are pulling out the best version of that ingredient? We read a lot of books on foodways and food policy and food history and, and are kind of applying those things to these ingredients to try and help people better understand them. And I think through better understanding them, you can make better cocktails with them. So that's out in June uh, by a 10 speed press. So yeah. It sounds fantastic. I look forward to that one as well. Thank you. So where can people find you on social media? Yep. So I'm most active, I guess, these days on Instagram and it's just my name at Emma Jansen. I'm still trying to figure out the whole like 
post-Twitter world because I used to love Twitter. Mm-hmm. And now I like I'm I'm still kind of there, but it I just don't really know what I'm what's going on or or anything. So I've signed up for threads, but I haven't used that yet. Instagram is the way to find me for sure in this time and place. At some point I'll figure out one of the word platforms because I am a writer and I like to write you, you know tweets. Sure. I miss tweeting. Well, your uh, your Instagram is is gorgeous, and and you always write nice descriptions of the place you're visiting or what you're talking about. So certainly, uh, extremely high value content on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Twitter. I I won't call it X because that's silly. Um, it's silly. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am still on it. I'm active on it. I enjoy it. I think I have my my feed really really well curated. So nice. I don't see a lot of the hue and cry of the of the crazies and and Bitcoin bros and yeah. that sort of thing. So it's really been overrun with a lot of that from what I understand, but I've heard the same. I I'm similar in my feed. I I'm not actually seeing a lot of that, which I'm thankful for, but also I feel like everyone who I used to interact with, save a handful of people, yourself and mm-hmm. Matthew Powell, we were talking about earlier, yeah. he's still on there. Um, there's like a very small handful of people. And I think maybe that's why I haven't been able to give it up yet. There's still a tiny community there that I that I don't really want to lose. So that's right. We'll yeah. see. I think if if at some point I did decide to give it up, I don't think that I would replace it with anything else. I think it would just be in, mm. down to Instagram. I'm actually yeah. I'm a, a big fan of uh, Stefan Van Eiken who wrote the, wrote the Whiskey Rising. Mm. And Stefan is a, he's a lovely guy. Lives in Tokyo. He's not on social media at all. What a life that would be. <laughs> right? Right. I would love that. I would honestly love that. If I could, I would. <laughs> that's that's the dream. That's the dream. Somehow yeah. he manages to stay relevant. So <laughs> that's that it's, is uh, the goal. That's the dream. That's right. That's right. I'll have to talk to him and <laughs> get his tips. <laughs> yeah. Well, I you know, next time you come to Japan, uh, maybe we we meet up in Tokyo and go to one of his favorite whiskey bars and Yeah. That would be fabulous. Really great guy. So I do hope to get out there and and come out and do like a you know a full proper shochu trip. I think it's pretty high on my bucket list of of things that I that I want to write about and and witness firsthand. I think I will fall even more in love with it the way that I did with agave spirits. I believe you are correct. I and I think I think there are things we can do to make that happen. So uh, yeah, let's let's Let talk you know. more about that let's for figure sure. Figure it out. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Really always lovely to to see you and and have a conversation. And I think uh, our listeners should enjoy this one quite a bit. So really appreciate your time and your thoughts. And um, hopefully we can have you on again at some point. That would be lovely. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Great. Thanks so much. And thank you all for listening to the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Stephen Lyman with Emma Jansen. If you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others find the show. And with this and every episode, please check out the show notes on japandistilled.com, where we'll have pictures and links and information about the things we've discussed. You can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. And uh, if you have interest, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time.